We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's just strayed so far from the book of Acts. Sometimes you can't even recognize it. It's important that we learn about the book of Acts and the early church. The persecution of believers started in chapter 4. They had just had a beautiful spiritual experience the day of Pentecost. But it doesn't take long for Satan to get upset with the work that Christians are doing. And in this case, the ones in the early church. You know, and Satan using the religious leaders to do that. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 as we begin. Now as they spoke, that is, speaking of Peter and John, to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the early church experienced favor with the people. We see that in chapter 2. But it wasn't long before <clears throat> that ended when the Jewish religion, religious leaders, they started attacking the church. They started attacking the people and what they were doing. And as Peter and John was speaking to the crowd, we read in the first two verses that there was a sudden interruption by the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. They approached them, again, the religious leaders. The reason that they were arrested is because they were teaching the people and preaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And it seems that the temple authorities, you know, were probably watching the growing crowd. You know, they were getting a little uneasy about what they were seeing taking place. They had caught bits and pieces of Peter's message and they began to to fear. They began to get alarmed. So it was time for them to put a stop to what Peter and John were doing. The arrest would be under the guise of, again, stopping a disturbance at the temple. But you see, the real reason was the religious leaders were very upset because they were preaching Jesus. And they were preaching about the resurrection. You see, Jesus is the real problem. It was the real problem here, and it's the real problem in the world today. Religions without Christ will not be targeted by the government or any other groups. You see, they can build their mosques. They can build their temples. But hey, don't wish people a Merry Christmas. Don't set up a nativity scene. Or don't put a cross in a a veteran's cemetery. Why? You'll be offending somebody. Where Jesus Christ is exalted, the enemy will attack. That is guaranteed. Verses 3 and 4. And they laid their hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be, notice, about 5,000. Notice how the persecution did not stop the word of God. Because you see, God is in control. Peter and John's arrest couldn't stop the Holy Spirit from doing His work. The early church, they didn't have a lot of the advantages that some ministries depend upon today. They didn't have big budgets that was provided by wealthy donors. Their pastors didn't have seminary degrees. They didn't have the backing of the, of the influential leaders of that day. Most of their ministers had jail records, kind of like a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors. 
And they were probably would have, would have had a hard time joining uh, our churches today, let alone leading them. What was really the secret of their success? This chapter tells us prayer. Prayer. The Christians of the early church knew how to pray so that God's hand could work in mighty power. When Charles Spurgeon was asked to explain the secret of his remarkable ministry, he said, my people pray for me. How important that is. I tell my church. I said, you want a better pastor? Pray for him. Pray for him. Just don't complain about him. Take him to the Lord. St. Augustine said, pray as though everything depended upon God and work as though everything depended upon you. You see, prayer doesn't take away our responsibility to work, to serve. True prayer energizes us for service and battle. Verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? So this was the official meeting of the Sanhedrin. And the same council that condemned Jesus Christ to die a few months earlier is this same council where Peter and John are standing before. These officials knew that Peter and John were friends of Jesus. The Sanhedrin was responsible for protecting the Jewish faith. And this meant that they had, <clears throat> they had to check out every new teacher every teaching that, uh, that, that came around. They had the right to check out <clears throat> what the church was doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they didn't have the right to arrest innocent men and then refuse to honestly examine the evidence. Now, <clears throat> notice, they did, they, they did everything possible to keep them from admitting that a miracle took place. They beat around the bush. They referred to the miracle as it, as we read on. In other words, how did people like you do this miracle? How did you guys do it? Again, it was once again the question, <clears throat> by what name? The religious leaders knew that Jesus was involved. And they gave credit to him for this miracle, according to verse 2. But they played dumb, asking the disciples, thank you. Asking the disciples this question. Because they wanted a confession. They wanted a confession. You see, if Jesus, I'm sorry, if Jesus is confessed, then the disciples aren't good people. You see, as far as the religious leaders are concerned, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> so I want to spill this on anything here. Uh, verses 8 through 10. And Peter answered her, Wrong, wrong, wrong place here. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. In the first 12 verses, we are told what the religious leaders did to Peter and to John and what they said and, and what Peter said back to them. Here we have a description 
of the first persecution that the new Christian church had experienced. And it was a persecution because the authorities had rejected the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's the first persecution and it has a great significance. It has great importance because it has all the characteristics of every persecution since this time. We see them today. That's why this is so important for us today. That's why it speaks to us today. Persecution always results from unbelief. And in our story here, we're given the characteristics, the basics of unbelief. So so pay attention to these things because what's recorded here accounts precisely for the unbelief that we see today. Martin Lord Jones said this. It's an, it's an old number, but it gives us the it, it gives us the idea of what he's talking about. Ten percent of the people in this country claim to be Christians, and we're told that only half go to church regularly. So when we go to church, we're doing something that's done by only five percent of the people of this country. Why are the others the ninety five percent outside? Chapter four here tells us why: unbelief, unbelief. There's something really quite amazing about what happened to Peter and John here. They were arrested right after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. And it's amazing. It's it's really hard to believe that anybody could behave the way that these people did. But again, this is still going on today with those who are not Christians, those who still don't believe. What happened to Peter and John was the same thing that happened to Jesus. Jesus. The opposition, the bitterness, the rejection, the hatred. Jesus even prophesied in John 15 that persecution would be a part of the life of all those who followed him. And you know what? It has been. So you see, there's nothing new about unbelief. Unbelief is ancient. You know, and the idea that we we should be disappointed when people don't believe the gospel, that we should think that, you know, oh, something has gone wrong. Hey, we're totally mistaken. The idea that the gospel is a message that has to uh, appeal to men and women is all wrong. See, by nature, people have always hated and rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when they do, they don't realize that they are proving the very truth of what the Bible says. They are proving the very thing that Jesus predicted. But the sad thing is, is that the world doesn't realize that in rejecting this message, it's rejecting the only message that can save them. So you might ask, and why do we preach the gospel? If it's not appealing and and people don't want to hear it, you know, and, 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 you know, why suffer the hardship? Why suffer the persecution? Why the discomforts? Why witness? Why? How about two world wars? Vietnam. Iraq, Afghanistan, the tensions between nations like Syria and Egypt, China, Russia, the international tensions right now. How about the sexual immorality, the violence, the drug and alcohol abuse, the abortion, the widespread divorce, and on and on it goes. That's why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the matter with our world? We're being told we're getting better, we're evolving. Man is progressing. What's the matter with men and women and young people today? The world is calling good evil and evil good. 
Isn't there anything that can make things right? The only thing that can even touch the problems of the human race is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you are testimonies of that. And yet people still aggressively oppose the gospel message. They ridicule it. They denounce it. The world is refusing the only thing that can make it right for individuals as well as nations. And I would ask you tonight, is there trouble in your life tonight? Do you need mercy? Do you need help? Is your life frustrating? Is it stale? Is it flat? Is it unfruitful? Then go to Christ. He's there for you. Are you lonely? Is life a constant battle that you seem to be losing? Go to Him. Are you defeated? Is life a constant struggle with temptation that you just can't overcome? Go to Him. Does life seem like a horrible mistake to you? Do you feel that your life has fallen apart and all your hopes have been shattered? Do you think you've made a mess out of your life? That you're a failure? I beg you, consider with all your heart more than ever before the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus invites you to come. He said, come to me, all, all you who labor and are heavy laden, weighed down with the cares of this life. He says, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to listen with much more attention than you ever have before because the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that can make your life right. And if people only believe the gospel, there would be no wars. There would be no international tensions. There would be no sexual immorality or violence or, 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 or drug and alcohol abuse, widespread divorce, and, and all the rest of the things that ail men today. Why? Because the psalmist said, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. But you see, you got to hand Him the pieces. That's why when we preach the gospel, we urge you to look at this case before us. Look at the reason why Peter and John were persecuted and look at the long history of the persecuted church. Verse 11. This, speaking of Christ is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the image of the stone, this was familiar to these men who were experts in the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew that the rock was a symbol of God and that Daniel had used the rock as a picture of the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom on earth. But the Jews stumbled over the rock and they rejected him just as Psalm 118.22 predicted. But... To those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their precious cornerstone and the chief cornerstone, that is their foundation. That's their foundation. Verse 12. Now, I'm sorry, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here we are given the greatest name ever. The name above all names. It's not Confucius. It's not Buddha. It's not Allah. 
It's not Krishna, Abraham, Moses, Mary. It's not Obama. It's not the name of any or, or, or many or any of God's best saints. Only in the name of Jesus Christ can you be saved. Now that's not popular today. Because you hear all the time, oh, many roads lead to God. No, they don't. That's foolishness. If I said, hey, come to my house. And then you ask, well, how do I get there? Take any road. They all lead to my house. You laugh. I have an address. I have a zip code. I have a name of a street so that you know how to get there. See, that's what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. To make sure that when he came... You know, we, we have, you know, the, the, the prophecy of the virgin birth. He'd be born in Bethlehem and he'd be born, you know, in this way. And, and he would grow up. And, and we saw all of these things about it so that you couldn't mistake him. Because there's a lot of false prophets. A lot of false messiahs. And there's going to be even more as, he gets, as it gets closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so again, here's the greatest name. Only in the name of Jesus Christ can you be saved. Jesus not, is, is not the, uh, one of many names or the best of several names. He's the only name. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why, how can Jesus say that? I am the way. He's the only one who died on a cross for our sins. He's the only one who resurrected from the dead. Nobody else died for my sins. Nobody else resurrected from the dead. That's why he has the exclusive rights of saying, hey, I am the only way. If you notice, the cross is the only symbol for Christianity. It's the only religion that uses the cross. Because Jesus died upon that cross. And because he did... He won the right to say, I am the way. And that's what people need to understand. Only in the name of Jesus can you be saved. The name in chapter 3, it's the name that, that, that healed the lame man. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That name healed people. It raised people from the dead. It was the only name where salvation could be found. But first, but first, they had to turn to the very name that they had crucified and killed. God would save only those on those terms. I mean, what great grace that is. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. What an awesome thing to say about somebody. Peter used the word of God like a skillful swordsman, stabbing, cutting down all of their defenses, piercing right straight to the heart. There was no questioning these Christians' boldness. Everything around them should have overwhelmed these two men. Peasants. Because you see, they were surrounded by the most powerful people in the land. They were surrounded by the nation's wealthiest, the most competent, the most refined, educated, and powerful men. And yet, look at their boldness. See, that's the kind of boldness we have in Jesus Christ. Many times when this world comes at a lot of Christians, they, they tuck their tail between their legs and they scurry off. 
Nobody was denying the fact that these two men had been with Jesus. They talked like Jesus. They lived like Jesus. Their enemies identified them with Jesus. And they marveled, it says. They marveled at what they saw in Peter and John. But they saw something else. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I love that. You cannot argue about a transformed life. That's what brought me to the Lord. I went to high school with Pastor Rawl. I hung out with him. I did a lot of this stuff that <laughs> I was there a lot of places when, you know, they gave the movie. And one day when he told me he got saved, I just thought, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Got saved. But when I watched his life drastically change, I could argue with him when he'd say, oh, read, the, read this. Read this. What the Bible? I, I could argue with him. I could deny what... But I couldn't deny that transformed life. And that was what eight months later brought me to the Lord. A transformed life. I mean, that's such a powerful testimony. Even more powerful than words. Because like I said, they can argue with you. But they can't deny that something has happened to you. And that's what these men saw. These religious leaders, they saw the lame man. They saw he had been healed. He was with Peter and John. Peter and John, the, the layman was identifying himself with those who led him to the Lord. And you know what? So wonderful about this? Think about it. The layman, after he got healed, like many people do, when God blesses them, when there's a prayer, God, oh, if you, if you help me, if you get me out of this mess, man, I'll, I'll, I'll come to church, I'll do. Well, this man could have ran away after he got healed. He could have just, you know, scurried and, and hid himself in the crowd and never, be, never been seen again. He wanted to stay with Peter and John. He wanted to stay with the Lord's people. And there he was testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ without saying a word. His life said it all. That man had been lame and laying in the spot by the, the temple gate, beautiful, for most of his life. And people had seen him for, for at least almost 40 years. And here he was. Not saying a word, but they had seen something had happened to him. You see, God uses the weak things to confound the mighty. So here's the problem for the rulers. They thought they had an easy case with these two nobodies, Peter and John. But instead of nobodies, and when Satan tells you you're a nobody, understand that these religious leaders came face to face with the Holy Spirit living in the hearts of three of the Lord's somebodies. The world says we're nobodies, but to God, we're his somebodies. And we need to remember that. Verses 15 and 16. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done uh, through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You bet. It's out in the open now. We can't deny it. The people have seen it. Something happened to that lame man. The miracle of the lame man was the talk of the town. Everybody in Jerusalem knew this man. He'd been laying in that one spot by the temple all of his life. Now he's whole. Now he's hanging out with Christians. He had prior to this gone into the temple with Peter and John, leaping and praising the Lord. He wasn't the same guy. He was whole. His healing, though, was connected to that name, 
Jesus. The name, the religious counsel of men tried to silence forever. The easiest thing would have been to deny that the man was healed, but hey, that was impossible. Everybody saw it. Verses 17 through 18. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. They just wanted these guys to go away. So what did they do? They threatened Peter and John. They forbid them to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. Now, this shows you by what the religious council did. This shows you how much the enemy fears the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. Because Satan has been trying to silence God's God's people from the very beginning. And as I said earlier, here's the sad thing. He succeeded with way too many Christians. The silent witnesses of the church. There There is no such thing as a silent witness. Man, we should be the most excited and the most, you know, uh, you know, just telling people about what has happened to us. Even the existential philosopher Albert Camus said this. What the world expects of Christians is that Christians should speak out loud and clear in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt could arise in the heart of the simplest man. The council didn't want the gospel message to spread, yet that's exactly what happened. From 100 people, uh, 120 people, men and women praying in the upper room in chapter 1, the church grew to more than 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, and now there's more than 5,000 disciples in the church. In the days that followed, we read that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Satan's attempts to silence the church only led to a stronger witness to the Lord. Verses 19 through 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What a great example. All of us need to follow Peter's example and make our decisions. Notice what he said. Notice what he said there, whether it is right. We need to make all of our decisions decisions based on is it right? Not is it popular? Not is it safe? Not is it politically correct? But is it right? Peter and John are being told what they can and cannot say, just as many pastors are, many Christians today, are being told what they can and cannot say. But we have to make sure that we are doing what is right in the eyes of God. We have to make sure that we have the clear teaching of the Word of God on our side before we take any stand against the government. Peter knew what the Lord had commanded the believers to do. You are going to be witnesses to me, Acts 1.8 says. And Peter and John said, we are going to obey God at any cost. And you know what? So should we. We're being silenced today by a handful of people. If you remember, not too long ago, just right at Christmas time, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty, and I'm looking at the, what, what happened to him. He spoke out against homosexuality and was removed from the show the next night. 
But there was an outcry of other Christians who support him, and he got back on. But you see, if we don't say anything, guess what? We are going to be stomped on. He took a stand for the word of God, and they tried to silence him. We need to understand, man. We need the boldness, as we'll see here, to speak the truth. Edmund Burke said, All that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Dante in the Inferno said, The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a time of moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. Martin Luther King said this, History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition wasn't the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Verses 21 through 22. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Because they had no real case to offer, the council could only threaten the man and then let them go. Because you see, when you have a living miracle before you, as well as a crowd around you that supports you, you have to be careful what you do. We have to let people know that we are Christians and that, you know, we take a stand for righteousness sake. Verses 23 now through 31. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have have said, why did the nation rage and the people plot main things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, notice, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is important. The greatest concentration of power in Jerusalem on that day was in that prayer meeting that followed that trial. This is, the, this is one of the truly great prayer meetings recorded in the Bible. A good example for us to follow when we get into trouble. For starters, it was a prayer for the witness and the service of the Lord. Peter and John had just come from the battlefield. And the church met to pray in order to to defeat the enemy. And if more of God's people were witnessing for Christ in daily life, there would be more of an urgency for prayer. And blessing. When the church would meet for prayer. And you know what it says here? Notice, it was what? A united prayer meeting. It says they raised their voice to God with one accord. You know what that means? The people were of one heart and one mind. That means there were no grudges. There was no gossip. There was no self-seeking. There was no unforgiveness. And God was pleased to answer their requests. Division in the church always hinders prayer and it robs the church of spiritual power. 
Their praying was based firmly on the word of God. And in this case, Psalm 2. The word of God and prayer must always go together. Jesus said in John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The word abide means to remain or to stay in a continual place or position. Stay in Christ and your words, his words stay in me. I can ask what I want. My prayers will be answered. You see, God speaks to us in his word and he tells us what he wants what he wants to do. And in prayer, we speak to him. And we make ourselves available to do his will. True prayer isn't telling God well, what to do. It, it, it's asking him to do his will in us and through us. It means getting God's will done on earth and not man's will done in heaven. Now notice something really cool here. These people who are being threatened, persecuted, they didn't run. They didn't get even. They prayed. They didn't fight. They didn't pray for God to change their situation. So many times we pray, Oh God, please get me out of this. Instead of praying, God, show me what you want to need to get from this. They didn't pray to change their situation or their circumstances or have the enemies done away with. They didn't ask God to, uh, to, to, to um, uh, rain down you know, brimstone and fire. They asked God to empower them to make the best use of their circumstances and to do what He had already determined to do. Now this wasn't defeatism. It was faith in the Lord who always has a perfect plan and is always victorious. They ask God for divine enablement. Lord, help me to deal with this problem. You know what? Give me boldness that I might speak the word of God. They didn't pray for a way of escape. God gave them the power they needed. The early church strongly believed in God's sovereignty and His perfect plan for His people. But notice... They didn't let their faith in divine sovereignty destroy human responsibility because they uh, were faithful to witness and pray. You see, it's when people get out of balance and overemphasize either uh, sovereignty, which is God does it all, or they overemphasize responsibility, man does it all, that the church loses power. God does his part, I do my part. In other words, you know what? Uh, If there's somebody in your life that you want to get saved, You'll say, oh, you'll, could, would you pray for my friend or my brother or whoever? You know, they're not saved and, and I really want them to save. And, you know, and I pray, God, please save them. God's part is to save. But are you, are you praying for them? Are, are you witnessing to them? That's my part. That's your part. I have a responsibility to witness to that person and then say, God, save them. Man has his part, God has his part. Faith in a sovereign Lord is such a great encouragement for God's people to keep serving the Lord no matter what they're going through, no matter how tough it gets. These people didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. They didn't ask, like I said, for fire and brimstone to rain down from heaven on their enemy. They asked for power to preach the word. What they wanted was boldness in the face of their problem, in the face of opposition. 
The emphasis here is on the hand of God at work in the life of the church. Believing prayer releases God's power and it enables God's hand to move. In closing, lastly, notice what they wanted in verse 27 and 30. They wanted to glorify Jesus Christ. It was His name that gave them power to minister to the Word, to minister the Word and to do miracles, and His name alone deserves the glory. The glory of God, not the needs of men, is the highest purpose of answered prayer. God's answer here was to shake the place where they were meeting and to fill the people once again with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Think of it. The early church here in the book of Acts was was far more healthier than any church is today. And yet they had none of the so-called advantages we have today. You know why? They depended upon God. They depended upon the Holy Spirit. Not the arm of the flesh, not the latest technology, not money, big budgets, all the, the, the glitz and glamour that, that you see in many churches today. They depended upon God. And when you depend upon God, He is faithful to meet your need. The filling of the Holy Spirit wasn't for entertainment. It was for empowerment, for service. And the filling of the Holy Spirit gave courage for their work and a lot of courage was needed. It gave them the boldness that they needed to keep serving God in spite of the opposition. And as you go through Acts, you see that it continues. Stephen ends up dying. He's the first martyr because the persecution didn't let up. And it's not going to let up until we're in glory. The Spirit wasn't for entertainment. It was for empowerment to serve God. The filling gave courage for their work. And and again, there was a lot of courage that was needed. It gave them boldness. The boldness they needed to keep serving God in spite of what they would experience. It was a new filling of the Holy Spirit to equip the believers to serve the Lord and minister to the people. Man, that's why the book of Acts is so important. Man, we need to read it and read it and study it. And we need to see how far we have come as a church and as Christians from what God intended. I mean, it's very clear and it's very simple. But we need to get back to basics. Our faith is in an object, in a person, Jesus Christ. And we are to put our faith in Him and Him alone. And when we do, we're going to see great and mighty works, things that, that we never believe, exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening to thank you for this great book, Lord. We thank you for your awesome word, Lord. We thank you that you left it for us. That, Father, you didn't leave us your word. You didn't give us your word for information, but for transformation. 
And I would pray tonight if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ. That God has spoken to your heart. That the Holy Spirit has revealed to you His love, His sacrifice for your sins, and the power of His Spirit in your life to transform you, to remove you from the bondage of sin, to put your life back together no matter how bad you might think it is or how hopeless you might think it is or how many pieces it may have been broken into. When you put your life into the hands of Christ, God could do wonders. Just like the little lad with a with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. When those meager resources were put into the hands of Jesus, everybody ate and everybody was filled. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.